0: Alrighty, well, let's um, go ahead and open our Bibles to Acts 5 and verse 34. Um, I would love to finish the chapter tonight, Acts 5. And if the Lord allows us to do that, we can start fresh in January, beginning in Acts six. Um, Acts chapter five, you have the uh, apostles' power demonstrated, verses twelve through sixteen. And as we have studied, this this led to their persecution. Acts 5, verse 17 through the end of the chapter. So in that second section there, we've seen the apostles arrested. Verses 17 through 26, the apostles examined. Verses 27 through 33. And uh, this is where Peter had an opportunity there as arrested before the Sanhedrin to give a bold Description of who Jesus is. And right in the midst of this, and I decided to entitle this uh, sage advice. <laughs> right in the middle of this, you have this uh, wise uh, Pharisee, part of this Sanhedrin, who speaks up. And his name is Gamaliel. And he sort of interrupts what's going on here, and he gives this uh, advice, which to some extent is, is, I think, is timeless. So that happens in verses 34 through 39, and then after that uh, presentation is over, then we'll have the results of the Sanhedrin's ruling. But first of all, notice Gamaliel's background and you see that there in verse 34. Um, we have an introduction to Gamaliel, verse 34. It says, but a Pharisee... Now, remember the sad the uh, temple area was dominated by the Sadducees. But there was a Pharisee in the mix. And it says, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council... And gave orders to put the men that 's the apostles outside for a short time, so first of all, notice who this man Gamaliel is a Pharisee named Gamaliel, uh, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people. so this guy is like a it's it's hard to really place uh, greater emphasis on him. He's like a Pharisee amongst the Pharisees, and in fact, um, as you probably know, the Apostle Paul, before he was saved, was a, was a Pharisee when he was Saul, and Gamaliel was Paul, uh, Saul, who became Paul, Saul's teacher. Um, Paul, when he gives his testimony in Acts 22, verse 3, says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, uh, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel. So Gamaliel is sort of like Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. I call it the Nick at night discourse. And it says of Nicodemus, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you did not understand these things. So Nicodemus wasn't just a teacher, he was the teacher. And uh, Gamaliel is sort of in that category. Um, if you look at verse 34, he's basically called... Um, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law uh some some of your translations may say a doc a doctor of the law, so he had like the highest education you could get um, in terms of his knowledge of the Old Testament law. so there are doctors out there that understand you know God's revelation. Um, my daughter used to call me a Sunday school doctor. <laughs> because I'm not like a medical doctor. My daddy's a Sunday school doctor. But Gamaliel, I mean this this concept of um one of the teachers of the law is used by Luke elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke. Remember Jesus, I think he was 12 years old. And that's a good story to think about around Christmas. It says in Luke 2, verse 46, it says, After three days they found him, that's Jesus, in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And they were blown away by his level of understanding. And then over in Luke 5, verse 17, it says, One day he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem, so um, that's basically who Gamaliel was. I mean he was like one of the top Pharisees he was one of the top teachers of the law he was extremely well respected so it's kind of at this point as the the apostles are being examined by the Sanhedrin that this man speaks up and he gives a command second part of verse thirty four He stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. So he basically wants to talk to his fellow, uh, religious leaders. He doesn't want the, the apostles to overhear what he's gonna say. So he just, he gives a command to get the apostles out of the vicinity. I mean, they were under arrest, as you know. So get them out, get them somewhere else, another Room somewhere where they're not really privy to the conversation, and so after introducing this background, now you have Gamaliel's address to his fellow uh, Sanhedrin members, and that's recorded in verses thirty-five through thirty-nine. And the first thing he starts off with is a word of caution, because remember, remember going back to verse thirty-three which we covered last time. Uh, when the Sanhedrin members heard Peter's testimony about Jesus, they were cut to the quick and they intended to kill them. So the Sanhedrin wants to basically lick, you know get rid of these guys, execute them. And this is where Gamaliel kind of stops them, and he advises caution. In other words, they have sort of this angry, rush-to-judgment mentality. And Gamaliel, this well-respected teacher, is saying, slow down. So what does he say there in verse 35? It says, and he said to them, men of Israel, take care what what you propose to do with these men. So what they were proposing to do is to, to kill the apostles. And Gamaliel says, stop, don't act so so rashly. And that's always pretty good advice for us, isn't it, when we get upset about something? (laughs) Um, The book of James says we ought to be quick to hear and slow to speak. As all of our moms taught us, at least my mom did, I'm sure yours did also. You know, God gave us two ears and one mouth. We should use them in proportion. Because we have a tendency to put our mouth in motion before our brain gets in motion. And sometimes we need to just take a deep breath and just calm down, particularly when you get an email that you're upset about. You might want to just give it 24 hours (laughs) because the problem with email is you'll fire back something rash and you'll look at it the next day and say, you know, I wish I hadn't quite said it that way. So that's what this guy Gamaliel is doing. He's just saying, let's just calm down for a minute. And after giving this word of caution, he gives two um, parallel illustrations. He reaches into recent history, and that's in verses 36 and 37. Verse 36, he talks about a man named Thutis. And then verse 37, he talks about someone else named Judas of Galilee. This Judas here, not to be confused with the Judas that betrayed Jesus, Judas actually was a common name in the, in the land of Israel at this time. But these are two historical examples that they would know something about. So what does he say about Thutis? That's in verse 36. He says, For some time ago, Theudas, if I'm pronouncing that right, rose up claiming to be somebody... And a group of about 400 men joined with him. But he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. So other than this reference to this man Thutis in, (coughs) excuse me, verse 36, we don't really have any other extra biblical information about him other than what we read here. But apparently he was a rebel, and he gathered about 400 men, and he, as a Jew, led a revolt against Rome. Um, The Jews hated the Romans because the Romans were the occupiers. The Romans had come to power uh, beginning about 63 B.C., Uh, under General Pompey into the land of Israel, had subjugated Israel, had taken away the right of the Jews to execute their own criminals. That's why they had to turn Jesus over to Rome for execution because Rome had taken away from them their sovereignty as a nation. And so Rome, you know, was always hated and so there was always revolts going on against Rome and Gamaliel says you remember what Theudas did he gathered 400 people against Rome and but that effort was quickly defeated and came to nothing that's his first historical example and i i do appreciate what it says here he he it doesn't say he gathered up 400 it says he gathered up about about 400 so the Bible, when it wants to be understood exactly, literally, will tell you, you know, there were 12 apostles, you know, not 15 or 11, but there were 12. Um, but other times when it just uses round numbers, it'll throw in this word about. The word about indicates that Gamaliel is not giving a math lesson here. He's just going from memory. There was about 400 that were involved in that particular revolt. The same thing is said about Peter and his opening sermon on the day of Pentecost in in the church age. And it talks about how 3,000 were saved. But it says in Acts 2 verse 41, it says, So then those who had received his word were baptized that day, and there were added... About three thousand souls. So when the Bible wants to be understood with mathematical precision, it will tell you, and when it wants to be understood as someone just sort of summarizing in generic terms, you know, what happened, it'll throw in this little word about. So it's kind of interesting how the Bible itself will tell you when it wants to be understood with mathematical precision when it's just summarizing something. And so uh, that's what Gamaliel is recalling here, about 400. You know, they rose up, they led a revolt against Rome. We Jews don't like Rome. So this kind of thing happened all the time. And he, this revolt was quickly put down and it came to nothing. And then Gamaliel goes on as he's addressing his fellow Sanhedrin members with the apostles out of earshot and he gives his second example and this was Judas of Galilee and if you look there at verse uh, 37 it says after this man Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census so remember Rome required the Jews to take a census um, that kind of thing was going on with the birth of christ you 'll remember, as Luke records it in his gospel and you know a lot of people just didn 't like Rome demanding these things from the people you know it 's kind of like how we feel, for example, when the the World Health Organization gives us a bunch of mandates and we say, well, we never voted on these, and they say we don't care. You know, it kind of stirs up this re- rebellion in us. Um, that's the same kind of thing that was going on here in Israel. It says after this, a man, after this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all that followed him were scattered. So. The second guy caused a rebellion. We're not told the number at all, even in general terms. But Judas instigated a revolt by proclaiming God alone is the king and not Rome. Now, unlike the first man, the second man, we do know something about him from the writings of Josephus, who was a first century Jewish uh, historian So Josephus tells us that this man's rebellion was crushed by the Roman procurator whose name was Crispus Fadus, And he came with 500 horses, excuse me, 5,000 horses, and took this guy Judas of Galilee and his rebellion and crushed it. And Josephus tells us that Judas of Galilee, he was beheaded. And this movement that the second guy started here, Judas of Galilee, became known in Jewish history. He kind of planted the seeds for what was called the Zealot Party. Um, One of the disciples, right, Simon the Zealot, I think it's Simon the Zealot, one of the apostles is called a zealot. He was a member of the this political persuasion. Um, it was a a movement that became the zealot party that ultimately led to the revolt against Rome in AD 66 to 70. And they're the ones that made their final stand against Rome at a place called Masada in AD 73. Masada is an interesting place. I've been there, um, let's see and we've been there how many times twice at least that i can think of it was um a vacation home for herod and when the romans came in and 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 wiped out the jewish nation in ad 70 a bunch of of zealots went and took over this herodian fortress and uh they took their last stand there um against Rome. And when it looked like they were going to lose to Rome, that Rome was going to conquer Masada around AD 73, they engaged in a mass suicide. Um, They they felt it would be better to just commit suicide, you know, than live under Roman rule. And I've been up there and there's a synagogue there and found in the pavement of the synagogue archaeologically is the final um, verses that they were reading from before they committed suicide. And what they found up there were scraps of Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37. And what's Ezekiel 36 and 37 about prophetically? It's about the gathering of the nation of Israel in the last days where God is going to make them an independent nation and save them, you know, politically and spiritually. So that's what they were thinking about these zealots um, just before they engaged in mass uh, mass suicide. So this guy Judas of Galilee is looked at as sort of the progenitor of the political party uh, that ultimately led to Masada. So he was a hardcore, you know, radical. I mean, these these are people who didn't mess around. It's like we're gonna, we're gonna rebel against Rome, and if Rome's gonna win, I'd rather commit suicide than live under Roman, Roman rule. That's, that's the zealot party. So, Gamaliel says Thutis gave it a shot and he failed. Judas of Galilee gave it a shot and in his lifetime he failed. And ultimately the political party that came out of Judas of Galilee Uh, failed as well and it's at this point now Gamaliel this really wise sage gives the application I mean why bring up this stuff from their known history and he gives the application in verses 38 and 39 Uh, you have a command and then you have the reason for the command look at verse 38 So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. So the command is, don't kill these apostles. You know, let them alone. Let basically let them do their thing. Well, why is that, Gamaliel? He gives the reason now, second part of verse 38, and into verse 39. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. Just like Thutis and Judas. Uh, They they did an act of zeal acts of zealotry that weren't of God and they fizzled out. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. In other words, if these apostles are just acting out of the flesh with the birth of the church, then whatever they're doing is going to fizzle out, just like Thutis and and Judas' work fizzled out. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even find yourself fighting against God. So just let them do their thing if their action is of men, it will fizzle out, just like these other historical examples. On the other hand, if this new church that we're seeing is actually of of God, then it doesn't really do you a lot of good to fight against it either. Because if it's of God, you're going to find yourself fighting against God. So if this is of God, you couldn't stop it anyway. Because how can you stop God? It reminds me of Acts 26 and verse 14 where Paul is giving his testimony, how he got saved in other words, and how he was persecuting the early church before he got saved and became the Apostle Paul. And the Lord appeared to him in a vision, you remember, said, Saul, Saul, why do you what? Persecute me. And then part of it, God said this to Paul. Acts 26 verse 14. When he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect. This is Jesus speaking now. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting against me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. (laughs) In other words, you're kicking against something that you can't defeat. You're kicking against the goads because you're coming against God himself. So the point of Gamaliel's speech here is movements typically do not outlast their uh, founders. Most movements will die off after the leadership dies off. Uh, on the other hand, if you're dealing with a situation where a movement is being sustained, even though the founders are dead, what you're dealing with is something that God started, and it would be just absolute foolishness to fight against it because you're fighting against God himself. That's, that's the point. And I think to really understand this, you have to put yourself in the position of the person who's reading this book for the very first time. Uh, We covered this in the introduction of the book. Um, The man's name is Theophilus. The purpose of the book of Acts and its prequel, Luke, is to present Theophilus with an orderly account of the birth and growth of the church so as to affirm him and what he has believed. In other words, Theophilus, as we've described it, is a Gentile who happened to be a believer who is was having doubts about his Christianity, probably where he lived in Rome. And he's probably thinking to himself, you know, this whole Christianity thing, it started off so Jewish, you know, and I'm a Gentile. I mean, is this Christianity thing really for me? So Luke is putting together this orderly account to affirm Theophilus that, in the fact that, yes, Christianity is for you. It's a supernatural work of God and it outlasted its founders and it made its way all the way to Rome and Gamaliel, the wisest of the wise, said, if this movement outlasts its founders, it's of God. Well, Theophilus, um, it is of God. And this is how God moved heaven and earth to get the gospel to you. So, to really understand the rhetorical impact of what what Gamaliel is saying here, you have to put yourself in the shoes of Theophilus and Once you see that, you understand why Luke the historian you know chose to include uh, this particular speech by Gamaliel. So the purpose of the book of Acts is the birth and growth of the church numerically ethnically and geographically to affirm Theophilus that this gospel that got to you is is a work of God. And Luke accomplishes that by giving us progress reports, how the church was growing numerically, Uh, ethnic reports, how the church was transitioning from being an offshoot of Judaism to a predominantly Gentile body, And geographically, how it made its way, you know, all the way from um, Jerusalem um, all the way to Rome. And you know, we took that voyage ourselves on the the cruise ship. Not this time around because we didn't get to Jerusalem because of the war. But that's not that's not a short trip. I mean, even you know, going in luxury, it's not a short trip you can put yourself back in the first century world and you could see how uh nearly impossible it would be for Christianity to move its way all the all the way to, to Rome. So Theophilus, you're in Rome and you're reading this and look at how much God loves you to get you the gospel. And don't forget what Gamaliel said. This thing should have fizzled out a long time ago if the supernatural hand of God was not in it. So you can look at yourself in North America in the year 2023, a totally different continent, you know, 2,000 years later, and Christianity is still alive and well. And and God kept it going long enough to get you saved and to get me saved. And so once you understand that, you start to understand how much God loves us, how much God care, cares about us. And... Um, we shouldn't, you know, second guess whether Christianity is true. So, and w- whether we're contemplated in the mind of God for salvation. Obviously we are. Because the birth and growth of the church is miraculous. This thing should have fizzled out 2,000 years ago when the apostles died, but here it is, you know, alive and well today. Now, I wanna, if I can, caution you a little bit about Gamaliel's statement because a lot of people will take it and they'll build a theology from it. Anything that works must be of God, and that's a doctrine called pragmatism. So Arnold Fruchtenbaum of Gamaliel's statement says, some have taken Gamaliel's words and turned them into divine truth. However, Luke simply recorded what Gamaliel said without necessarily confirming the absolute validity of his words. In other words, Gamaliel just made a general statement. He's not dealing with an ironclad 100% rule here. This was Gamaliel's personal opinion. It was not a biblical truth. It was true in this context, but you can't develop it, develop from it some kind of universal law. Many things that are not of God, such as false religions and cults, have prospered. One must be careful not to use someone's opinion as biblical truth. So, if it works, it must be of God. Well then we'd have to, we'd have to approve of Mormonism which has grown exponentially. We would have to approve of Islam, you know, which has grown exponentially. So Gamaliel was just giving his personal opinion here. He wasn't painting some kind of, you know, 100% biblical truth. Inerrancy only guarantees that what Gamaliel said is recorded here. Um, this is actually what he said, but you shouldn't develop from it some kind of universal principle or else you'd have to applaud Islam. Because Islam came about in the 7th century AD and it's still alive and well, even though Muhammad, you know, died, you know, a long time ago. Of course, Islam has a little bit of an advantage. Uh, they can go around and convert people by the sword. You know, we as Christians don't do that or... There have been Christians in history that have done that, but they're outside of biblical parameters. So not everything that works is necessarily of God. But in this case, Gamaliel says um, it is true. Don't kill these apostles. Uh, Why not? Because if what they're doing has no divine power in it, it's just going to fizzle out just like Thutis and Judas. But on the other hand, if what these apostles are really doing is true, um, you're going to be fighting against God himself because God is going to outlive the movement after its leaders disappear. So we have what the apostles' arrest, the apostles' examination, You have their Gamaliel's sort of interruption and advice. As I said before, I think Gamaliel's words are recorded for the benefit of Theophilus, who was second guessing whether Christianity was true. And after all of this is said and done, now you have the results. What's the Sanhedrin going to do with these apostles? So the results are recorded first of all for the Sanhedrin and then the general, uh, results as they affected the apostles. The results for the Sanhedrin, verse 40, the results for the apostles, verses 41 and 42. So notice what the Sanhedrin does. It's there in verse 40. They took his advice. I mean, why would they take his advice? He's the wisest of the wise. They decided not to kill the apostles. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So the first thing the Sanhedrin does, verse 40, is they agree with Gamaliel, okay, Let's not be rash. Let's not kill the apostles. And then all of this conversation between Gamaliel and the Sanhedrin is taking place outside of the apostles earshot. So then in verse 40, they bring the apostles back into the chamber. Um If you look at verse 34, they were told under Gamaliel's command to get them outside the chamber. But now the apostles are brought back into the chamber. And what does the Sanhedrin do? They punish the apostles. They don't kill them, but they punish them. And it's right there in verse 40. They took his advice. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them. Now, why would they flog them? They flogged them because the apostles had disobeyed the command of Acts 4, verses 17 and 18, where they were told directly by the Sanhedrin to not teach or speak anymore in the name of Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Acts 4, verses 17 and 18, it says, But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in his name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, the apostles had disobeyed that command, and so they were deserving of a flogging. And this is important because this is now the first time anybody in the church age has suffered physically, you know, for their faith. The worst thing that's happened thus far is they were given a gag order. But now the persecution has ramped up to the point where they not only had hands laid on them, but they were, they were flogged. And most likely the way they were flogged is 40 lashes minus one. Uh, It doesn't say that here, but that was just a tradition. Um, If you disobeyed the Sanhedrin's command, you were in trouble. Because the 40th lash, it was said, killed you. And so you were sort of beaten to the point where you were almost dead, but not completely dead. And you'll find that practice at work in Deuteronomy 25, verses 2 and 3. It says, Then it shall be that if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judges shall make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. He may beat him 40 times, but no more so that he does not beat him with many more stripes than these, and your brother is not degraded in your eyes. So it could have been this beating was that intense. Forty lashes minus one, 39 lashes, which is what they did with Jesus, as you know. Paul the Apostle suffered this punishment regularly. Uh, this happened to Paul the Apostle five times it says in second corinthians chapter 11 verse 24 five times paul says as he's comparing his apostleship to a group of people that are trying to attract attention to themselves instead of paul he says do they really think they're apostles <laughs> look at what i've gone through Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. So th- think about that. Five times in your life, 39 lashes, beaten within an inch of your, your life. And that could very well be what happened to these apostles. So things have obviously escalated from a gag order to number two, laying hands on them to arrest them, to number three, uh, now there's actual physical perse- Persecution. So after punishing the apostles then the Sanhedrin uh, charges the apostles verse forty they took his advice after calling the apostles in they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. so they reemphasized what they had said earlier, repeated uh, in acts what, what was said in acts four verses seventeen and eighteen. Um in Acts 4, there was no beating. There was just a gag order. And so this is now the first time the church is suffering physically for its, its cause. And then the Sanhedrin, after doing this, after punishing them, after ch- charging them, releases the apostles. Right there at the end of verse 40, it says, and then release them. So these are, these are the results of what Peter said and how Gamaliel intervened and why the apostles weren't killed on the spot. Um, The apostles probably would have been killed, all things considered from the human perspective, had Gamaliel, you know, not stepped up to the plate. So those are the results in terms of the Sanhedrin. What are the results in terms of the apostles? How how do they react to this? I mean, how would you you react if someone lays hands on you and gives you 39 lashes for for doing nothing more than testifying about how wonderful Jesus is and he rose from the dead? Uh, This is a, a stunning thing, to me anyway, in terms of the reaction of the apostles. You see their joy. Verse 41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, you know, feeling sorry for themselves and getting on the email and petitioning government. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't say that. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy, wow, to suffer shame. You know, when you're beaten within an inch of your life, it's a shameful thing. The the passage I gave in Deuteronomy said, don't give him 40 lashes because your brother will be degraded in your eyes. Give him 39 lashes. So it was humiliating. So these apostles go away, verse 41, rejoicing. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now this uh, verb to deem worthy, because they were rejoicing because they considered themselves worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ, is used only three times in the Bible. Um, it's used here. It's used in Second Thessalonians one verse five, and it's used in the prequel, Luke twenty, verse thirty five. Second Thessalonians chapter one verse five says, "This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom, which indeed you are suffering. Uh, it's also used in Luke twenty verse thirty five it says, But those who are considered worthy to attain the age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. And here it's used uh, yet again where they consider themselves worthy you know, to suffer for the cause of Christ. So it reminds me very much of something that's going to happen to Paul later on in the book of Acts in Philippi. It says over there in Acts 16, 22 through 25, the crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, not a few blows. This is how the people in Philippi treated Paul's and Silas' message. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So it's one thing to be beaten up. I mean, it says here many blows, beaten with rods. Uh, and then you add on top of it, you put someone in, uh, you know, basically hand and foot handcuffs where they're immobile. And then Acts 16, verse 25, records the reaction of Paul and Silas, the victims of persecution. It says in verse 25, but about midnight, so they're being sleep deprived on top of everything else, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Wow, are you kidding me? And the prisoners, that's the rest of the prisoners, were listening to them. What's wrong with these guys, you know? They're praising the Lord, they're singing hymns in the midst of, uh, persecution. So that, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit allows people to do that are yielded to Him. A wonderful book on this that Paul's gonna author later on is the book of Philippians, which is the book of joy. And it's how to have joy in the midst of adverse circumstances. And you're seeing this right here in the book of Acts. These apostles are flogged and they're rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. Uh, Paul and Silas are mistreated and abused. And there they are in the middle of the night praising God and singing hymns. So I would just say this. Uh, we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, don't we? Because um, a a self-motivational class can't give you the ability to do this. This is something that's supernatural. By the way, this is how the Philippian jailer, who's going to get saved later on in that chapter, got saved because he saw this and it made no sense to him. It was supernatural. And I think he wanted what they had. That's why he was open to the gospel. So that becomes one of the reasons why you lose your job. Uh, you get a negative report from the doctor. And you just say, Lord, just help me through this. And you walk through it with peace and joy. And the world watches you and says, that doesn't make any sense that they're reacting that way. doesn't make any sense. They obviously have something that I don't. So it's actually evangelistic um, as to why God allows these things to happen. So they're reacting with joy. And then verse 42, they're reacting with zeal. And every day, what does every day mean? It means every day, right? Every day in the temple and from house to house, They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as Christ. You see what is happening here? They're engaging in civil disobedience. They're telling the governing authorities, no, we're going to follow God. We're not going to stop talking and teaching anymore about Jesus because at the beginning of the book, Jesus said to the apostles, you will be my witnesses. In in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. So, if we just fold the tent every time a governing authority tells us to do otherwise, we're 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 um, missing our purpose for being here on the earth. So this chapter, among many other chapters in the Bible, but this one particularly becomes a great textbook on civil disobedience. Didn't we see it back in verse twenty nine? But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. See, there's a, there's a belief out there in Christianity that says, you know, and I really saw this, um, during the whole pandemic thing, that no matter what the government, and even leaders within evangelical Christianity were saying this, um, Whatever the government tells you to do, you just gotta, you just gotta do it. And I'm here to tell you folks that that is not the biblical position. Yeah, but Pastor, it does say we're to submit to the government. Yes, we are. Until the, until the government goes too far and starts telling you to do things God says don't do or starts stopping you from doing things that God says to do. Uh, As we've talked about, you have two chapters in your Bible in the book of Daniel that deal with this. Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. And then Daniel 6, uh, Daniel was told, don't pray publicly anymore. He went ahead and did it, got thrown into the lion's den. So the Bible, even though Romans 13 says what it says, we're to submit to the laws of the land, the biblical position is not you obey the government no matter what the government says. That's not the biblical position. Any more than we would interpret Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33, that the wife is to submit to the husband we would never interpret that as the wife is to submit to the husband no matter what the husband does. If the husband is physically abusing the wife, the wife is to submit to the husband. If if the husband tells the wife not to study the Bible anymore, we would never tell a wife to submit to her husband. So it's a general rule that you submit to authority, but the moment... Those in authority cross the line is the moment you as a Christian have a right to tell the authorities no. I have four criteria that I use on this, and I've given you these before, but there's gotta be a clear contradiction between God's law and man's law. Clearly you have it here. Because they said, don't be witnesses. And they said, nope, Jesus said we are witnesses. Um, Number two, you have to try to exhaust all creative legal remedies, meaning you have to, I mean, civil disobedience should not be a first resort, but a last resort. You try as hard as you can to, as Paul says, live at peace with all men. Um, Number three, when you engage in civil disobedience you have to remain respectful to the authorities. There's no disrespect here. They're not call the apostles aren't calling the Sanhedrin names. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they're rebelling against authorities, are still reverently referring to the authorities as O king. Not, oh, you loser and you're going to hell or whatever. And then number four, when you step out and disobey the authorities, you have to be willing to pay the price. Because that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said in Daniel 3 verse 18. They said, look, God can rescue us, but even if he doesn't, meaning we get, we might get incinerated in this fiery furnace. Even if he doesn't, we're still not going to obey. So as long as those four criteria are met, um, the biblical position is not you just submit to government no matter what government says. You know, when the mandates were coming down, I mean, they were telling churches to shut down. You can't go to church anymore. Well, I'm sorry, my Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. Uh, as the mandates and things were coming down, they were saying, okay, you can sing, but you can't sing in a group. Um, you, and you can only sing certain, I don't know, sound levels, uh, because we don't want to spread the virus. Um, well i 'm sorry, my Bible says God inhabits the praises of His people, so even here in the late great United states we 're having to think for the very first time, at least in my lifetime, about telling the government no. Uh, I could go on and on talking about this, but I think you guys kind of kind of catch my drift, so they just went right on ahead. And started preaching that Yeshua is the Messiah. Notice they did it in public. You know, they were out there up front in your face. I don't think they were being obnoxious about it, but they went right back to the temple where the authorities could see him. And they were preaching Yeshua, the Hebrew name for Jesus. And then you'll notice in verse 42, they were doing it from house to house. So they were doing it privately. So what a, what a testimony. So, sort of in conclusion, um, we see the Apostles' power, verses 12 through 16, and the Apostles' persecution. And the church, in the midst of all of this, is going to keep thriving, and it's going to keep growing. To the point where, when we get to Acts 6, I believe January 10th is when we reconvene. Um, it's going to create an internal problem because the church is growing so fast that it's creating service needs within the church that if the apostles had plunged into addressing all of these service needs, they would have gotten off their message, their main task, which is prayer and the word. So that's why it's at that point that God is going to raise up a brand new office within the church called the deacons who are going to handle these uh, service projects. So I just want you to see what's happening here as we're documenting the birth and growth of the church. Um, Acts 4, external attack by the governing authorities. Acts 5, verses 1 through 11, Internal attack. Satan using Ananias and Sapphira. The rest of Acts chapter 5. External attack. Dealing again with the governing authorities. Acts 6 verses 1 through 7. Internal attack. We've got service project issues. And then you get to um, Acts 6. Verse 8, all the way through the end of chapter 7, the first martyrdom, Stephen, external attack. So you see what Satan is always doing? He's attacking the church from without. He's attacking the church from within. And I'm not here to give Satan advice, but I think his internal attacks are far more effective Because every time you try to attack the church from the outside, the church always grows. Be careful about praying for church growth (laughs) because persecution is always the tool that leads to to church growth. The The church today is thriving in the parts of the world that have the most despotic regimes. Iran, the church is thriving underground. China, the church is thriving underground. Every time Satan attacks the church from the outside, it always grows. I think Satan is far more effective when he works on the inside and he applies for church membership, for example, and wants to teach Sunday school and wants to sing in the choir. Um, He's far more effective internally than he is externally. And I'm not, Satan, I hope you're not listening. I'm not here to give you advice, but... Your internal attacks are far more effective than external attacks. But anyway, you see that pattern, external, internal, external, internal. So I'm giving you a Christmas present. I'm letting you out one minute early. So we'll wrap it up at this point. Let me just close in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for your truth, your word. Just pray we'll keep you first and foremost on our your, our minds this holiday Season, we don't even like, Lord, to use the word holiday season. It's the Christmas season. It's the birth of your son. Looking backward to Thanksgiving, looking forward to the nativity and the birth of your son as we celebrate it, and looking forward to what you might have for us in the new year. It may not come the way we expect things to come, but we know that at the end of the day that that maybe not all things are good, but you use all things together for good. And we invite you to do that here at Sugarland Bible Church. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said. Amen. If you gotta collect your young ones and take off or, and or take off, feel free to do that.